today's devotion. We're in Acts chapter 9. Uh, here we see the conversion of Saul. He was introduced two chapters ago with the martyrdom of Stephen, and now the one who is sort of the ringleader of that unjust execution uh, will now become a, a follower of the movement he was trying to put out. But the story begins with his ongoing um, persecution of the church. So there, verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest asking for letters. So now he's seeking for more legal official approval to persecute uh, Christians. So he's not not just doing it for his own purpose. But you'll notice there in verse 2 that the word Christian doesn't exist yet. That, that'll show up later in, in Acts. So, so what do you call this movement uh, of, of Jesus' followers? Uh, one of the more prominent names we get from Acts is the way, that they were followers of the way. Of course, Jesus said famously in John 14, 6, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so that's interesting. Uh, they weren't known as Christians early on, but they were known as the way, the followers of, of the way. Um, and he was seeking to bind Christians and to bring them to Jerusalem where they would suffer. Um, and so as he was approaching Damascus, there in verse 3, uh, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. This light would blind him, uh, at least for three days. And so his healing is closely associated with his conversion. And we talked about this in the four Gospels, that the, the, the miracles of Jesus aren't there just to um, you know, see Jesus as a humanitarian, but rather to see what the gospel actually is. Uh, the gospel is more than fire insurance. It is uh, regeneration. Um, it is salvation. It is new creation. And so Saul is going to be, uh, he is blind, uh, but then he will see both physically and spiritually. But notice when this light shines around him, he falls to the ground. He hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? It's interesting that he immediately recognizes that the person speaking is of a greater authority. Now, most of your translations will have Lord as a capital L. I think that's right. Uh, but at the very least, um, even if it's a little L, because he doesn't, doesn't know what's happening here, I think he realizes it's a theophany of some, some sort. Uh, Saul realizes that he is under the authority of this mighty power. Well, it's striking, isn't it, that Jesus identifies with the Christians who are suffering. Because uh, he doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting believers? Why are you persecuting the people who follow me? But rather he asks, why are you persecuting me? It's a striking language, isn't it? I mean, just pause and consider the implications of that. Not just theologically, and in the relation between Christ and the church, but also practically. If we wrong a fellow believer, if we sin against another believer, who are we really wronging? Remember David saying after the Bathsheba incident and, and the prophet Nathan confronts him. Remember his, I believe it's Psalm 51, where he says, Against you have I sinned? Now, in a real sense, he, he did sin against Uriah, Bathsheba, and, and everyone else, but, but ultimately he sinned against God. Who is it that Saul is actually persecuting here? Christians? Yes, of course. But ultimately against Christ. And yet what is striking here is that although Christ identifies with the church, he at the same time willingly saves and redeems Saul. Not because he deserves it, but because he is that good. This is a striking narrative that, that we have here. And so uh, Jesus tells Saul to 
look f- go to Damascus, look for a man named Ananias. It's striking. One wonders, was he going to Damascus hunting for Ananias? Now he's going to Damascus looking for Ananias, right? Before, he was a persecutor of people like Ananias. Now, he is seeking out Ananias as a disciple of, of, of Jesus. So, um, now notice that, that Ananias gets a vision similarly to the way Saul gets a vision. So, um, uh, he, he says Ananias, much like we got Saul, Saul, so now we get Ananias. Uh, and he says, here I am, Lord. Now, Saul, remember, says, who are you, Lord? Ananias says, uh, here I am. That's the difference between the believer and non-believer. The believer knows and is ready to obey their Savior. The non-believer doesn't really know who he is, at least not yet, not till conversion. And so Ananias says, I need you to go to a street called Straight at the house of a man named Judas. Now, uh, don't read into this, and I'm not encouraged to read into this, but I do find it striking that we met an Ananias previously at Acts, and he was condemned. Uh, remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. And then we meet this guy named Judas, the house of Judas. Uh, this obviously is a different Judas than, than a disciple. But that Judas was under judgment. This Judas is a believer. You can do with that whatever you want. It's just something I, I noticed in reading it this morning. Well, uh, Ananias is, of course, uh, nervous about this. You know, you, you mean to tell me the guy raging against Christians is coming here and you want me to greet him, <laughs> right? Um, but we see in verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, Paul's there. What we would expect Jesus to say to Ananias is, Look, you're going to lead him to Christ. Everything's going to be okay. You'll be best buddies. Friends on Facebook. You, you, the two of you will retweet everything on, on the Twitter. And we'll follow each other on the Tic Tac. Whatever it is, right? But actually what Jesus says is, no, you're going to lead him to Christ. And he's going to learn what it means to suffer. This is the will of God for, for Saul. It is his will to suffer. And just pause and, and contemplate what that means. It could be God's will for you to suffer. Not because God's love for you is inadequate or less than it might be for other people. As we see in the case with, with Saul, it, it, it was a demonstration of God's love. It was through suffering that Saul's theology was really rounded out. And he became a vessel and a light to other people. So don't, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your suffering at all. As I came across a Piper quote, or is a Tim Keller quote, I won't get it right. Something like, don't judge, your, don't judge the love of Christ by your circumstances. But, but view your circumstances with the love of Christ, something like that. The whole point is, is don't say, because things are bad, God doesn't like me. But rather say, even though things are bad, I know that God still loves me. It's a big, big difference. It goes on, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Striking language, isn't it? Brother Saul, rather than my enemy. It's brother. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice the, notice the connection. The, opening his eyes is redemption. The, the gain of the Holy Spirit. 
And that's how we're to view the, the miracles, most of the miracles throughout the New Testament. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, taking food. He was strengthened. Notice his story now mirrors the story of everyone else. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Ananias is not a deacon. He is not a pa- or He's not an apostle. Maybe he's a pastor. I don't know. But he is used by God for this single moment. We don't really know nothing else about him uh, except this very moment, much like Mordecai Ham. We know very little about Mordecai Ham, at least the average person. But what we do know about Mordecai Ham was one day in North Carolina, he was preaching a tent revival, and a man named William Graham, Billy Graham, came forward to be saved. And from that moment, he became the Billy Graham that history will forever know him. So Ananias is very much the, the same way. Uh, so having believed, he is baptized and thus strengthened by the brothers. Well, now we go from Saul persecuting Christians to proclaiming Christ to, to fellow Jews. And so there at the end of verse 20, he claims in the synagogues he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name? Has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? And they're amazed. Now, now it's here we should pause and consider, if you're looking for evidence of Christ, I think you could look at Saul here. He's an unlikely convert. You could do the same thing with James and some others, but but Saul is certainly one of them. There's no denying he existed. There's no denying that he wrote letters of the New Testament. There's no denying that he was a follower of Jesus. And there's little debate that he went from a, a radical uh, hater of Christians to becoming a, a leading voice for Christians. He is evidence of the resurrection. It is very likely that it was his mentors who approved and were active in the execution of Jesus. And having seen Christ alive, having been around the first Christians, and having promoted Christ, he's a witness to these things. This is what moves one from a persecutor to to a believer. Well, after he begins to preach Christ, Saul immediately starts to face suffering. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So, so the one who was plotting to, be, to kill Christians is now um, being plotted against as a Christian. Their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates and night, um, day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let them down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Saul will mention this later in 2 Corinthians. We, we looked at it months ago. Uh, this is really the first instance he had to learn what it means to suffer. And that is not because God had abandoned him. Uh, but uh, God was going to use this experience as, as he would with the Corinthians. Um, he then comes to Jerusalem and it says there they were all afraid of him, but did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, there's a couple ways we could take this. One is we could be disappointed with, with the Christians, right? But chances are you've done the same thing. If someone just got out of prison and sat right next to you in the church, chances are your self-righteousness in reading this verse is a bit hypocritical, isn't it? I know what it's like for people who do get out of prison and they see people uh, who know that they just got in prison in the church are real hesitant to trust them, to be around them, to leave their purse hanging around or, or whatever it, it might be. Uh, this is a common issue. But, so what I always like to say is, is the church needs to uh, be sensitive to this. But I also say to those who are going through this, like Saul, you need to be sensitive to this. Trust isn't just something that, that, that y- you earn overnight. 
So Saul has to demonstrate. And by the way, I, I think a good modern parallel to, to this story would be uh, the story of Charles Coulson, Chuck Coulson, who, who was the hatchet man, so-called, uh, of Richard Nixon. It was at the center of the Watergate scandal, went to prison because of the Watergate scandal, and yet in prison was redeemed. It was not like when Coulson got out, everyone just, just embraced him. No, he's still the hatchet man. That's what he's known for. And people are hesitant. You know, is this conversion legitimate or not? It took him years, decades of faithful service in and out of prisons. Uh, and it became one of the most influential Christians of the 20th century. I've got a lot of his books here in my library. And uh, his uh, uh, Colson Center ministries are still influential in my daily life. But it's not like that's something that happened overnight. You think he had a hard time hiring people for uh, his ministry um, you know, early on? Well, of course he did. And that's to be expected. It, it's hard to, to, to move our reputation from one thing to another, and Saul's dealing with this. So on the one hand, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to, to Saul. It's unfortunate that he's having to go through that. On the other hand, I'm sympathetic to, to the church. And too many people think that, uh, uh, that, that we should walk in the church and everything should be okay. At the same time, there's too many people in the church who think that we should keep people at a distance. Both, both need to be reformed there. Well, notice that despite that, there's a guy named Barnabas. Now, Barnabas will play an important role in Acts. He's not a major character, but he's an important character. And Barnabas means son of encouragement. We met him earlier. He was the guy that, in contrast to Ananias and Sapphira, uh, sold everything he had and gave it to the church. Chances are... Um, you were still at a local church because of a Barnabas. In fact, there are people here at East Frankfurt that um, are Barnabases, and and I will try to uh, navigate them to certain people who need encouragement, who who need the presence of, of a of a real Christian in in their life, and 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 I, I will do that um, because Barnabas made a difference in Saul's life. I'm sure he was frustrated. No, no one wants to believe that I, I, I'm the real deal. But Barnabas is willing to take that risk. I mean, he's the guy who sold, who's already sold everything. What is he going to lose? Will Saul take his life? Yeah, he's not going to lose anything in that. Oh, Barnabas gets it. And then we all need a Barnabas in our life. Someone to encourage and, and to help us. So, well, I just want to skip down to verse 31. It's a long chapter. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Remember Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the most parts of the earth. So now what do we have? We have Jerusalem, the church is now in Judea and Samaria, uh, and in Galilee. So, 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 so we have all of, of Israel. Now the gospel has reached, and Saul is standing at the center of that, at least for now. We're going to go back to Peter here in a minute. But he's at the center of it in the Judea-Samaria story. And they had peace and was being built up. <laughs> what do you know? They weren't so caught up about politics. Huh. Who would have thought that would have given us peace? And walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Striking, isn't it? Fear and comfort. Fear and comfort simultaneously. One of those great mysteries of the Bible. Well, from there, we're going to pause from the story of Saul. Um, uh, Luke will pick up with his story, uh, and, and Saul will be the, the main character. But we'll look briefly at Peter. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I know we've probably already gone too long. Um, Starting in verse 32, we meet Peter. Uh, he is in Lydda. He finds a man named Aeneas. Now, this is striking. Uh, this is a story that is often overlooked. It's not a very long story. Bedridden for eight years. He was paralyzed. 
Uh, and Peter says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Aeneas is a, uh, is, is a well-known Greek name. You can read Aeneas, not this guy, but it's a Greek philosopher. Um, and immediately he, he, he is healed. Right. Then we get another healing from Peter. This is a better known one. This is Tabitha, better known as Dorcas. I like to name Tabitha um, personally, but it's the same name. He's in Joppa, so he's in the uh, Judea, uh, Samaria, Galilee area. Um, and she has died. You see it there, verse 37. In those days she became ill and died. And Peter comes, like Elijah, and like Jesus, in terms of parallels, uh, and raises her. So verse 40, Tabitha arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave his hand, her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. He became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. He stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner. Here is an example. Yes, we have a miracle. That's, that's, that's the main point. But the, this last verse emphasizes someone who plays no real role in the story. You can take out uh, the last four or five words in English of this verse, and it would not affect it at all. Does it really matter that he was staying at the home of a guy named Simon uh, the, uh, a Tanner? No. But why have it? I believe, we, I've tried to point these out as we've come across them in, in the New Testament narratives. I believe the gospel writers frequently tell us who their eyewitnesses are, at least some of them. And I think Simon the Tanner is one of them. And Ananias is likely one, right? We, we, we saw the story of Saul. Um, but I think Simon here, there's a lot of Simons, uh, but I think Simon the Tanner is one of them. So he, he's saying, look, Peter really did come in here and he was staying at my house. And let me tell you what happened. After he'd raised that girl, he stuck around. He discipled all these new believers. And, and that is the genesis of this church. My point is, when you read the New Testament, you're not reading something that, that was written uh, a thousand years later, like, like what happens with Caesars and, and Alexander the Great and others. Rather, what you have are eyewitness testimony of those still alive, written within a few decades of the actual events. This is, this is unusual in ancient literature, which should encourage us to believe that this actually happened. And then you have to explain, where did all these Christians come from? And here comes Luke saying, I've got eyewitness testimony. This is where they come from. So let that be encouragement to you every time you open the Word of God. Hope to see you guys here tomorrow. We'll look at Acts chapter 10.